What I'm talking about today, very rapidly, in half an hour, is um, sort of moments when I have, in the course of my career as a classicist, um, encountered Hercules. Not physically, of course, I wouldn't be here if, if that has happened, but uh, intellectually, um, in terms of doing research and that kind of thing. Um, it wasn't quite so autobiographical as that sounds when I started off doing it, but I did discover that actually, by thinking about the moments when I had thought about Hercules um, as a Latinist and as a classicist uh, more generally, um, I was actually sort of tracing my, my academic career, which is a little bit peculiar and a little bit um, self-obsessed, arguably. Um, but I suppose it can give you so, some sense of what happens with a classicist, what you do with the cla as, as a classicist, where classics can take you, um, I suppose, ultimately. OK, anyway, but cracking on. Hercules is the great hero of Greece and of Rome. He's a, uh, a figure who leaves his mark quite literally um, across the ancient world. And the ancients, in the geography of their world, in the geography of the Mediterranean and beyond the Mediterranean, could see, they thought, um, evidence that Hercules had been their way. So here we have Gibraltar at the, uh, at the bottom, uh, one half of the Pillars of Hercules, um, a place that uh, Hercules had reached and, uh, and, 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 and created. Um, Herodotus at the top, talking about the very edge of the known world. He's talking about Scythia, which is kind of vaguely somewhere in the vicinity of, of, uh, the, sort of the north of the Black Sea, where there's a massive impression of a foot, which is associated with Hercules. Down here, Propertius, worried that um, Cynthia is going to buy I not to enjoy the waters, but to enjoy the uh, company of somebody other than Propertius, um, talks a little bit about Hercules' causeway which is one, on the edge of the water there. Um, roads, mountains, hot springs, peculiar geological formations, all of these things could easily be, in the ancient mind, associated with Hercules. Now, here's a slightly more specific instance of what I've been talking about. Um, and it'll also lead us into some kind of explanation of why this was going on. So I've entirely failed to uh, say who this is uh, from, uh, but it's Diodorus. Uh, and he's talking about a, a location in Sicily. And it came to pass that a peculiar thing took place near the city of Agirium as Hercules was coming through. Here he was honoured on equal terms with the Olympian gods by festivals and splendid sacrifices. And though before this time he had accepted no sacrifice, he then gave his consent for the first time, since the deity was giving intimations to him of his coming immortality. For instance, there was a road not far from the city, which was all of rock, and yet the cattle left their tracks in it, as if uh, it was a waxy substance. Um, and he goes on and talks about other things that intimated to Hercules that he was becoming a god, becoming heavier, and hence leaving imprints, or the cattle that he was with were leaving imprints in the ground. It's a fantastic myth, a fantastic explanation of, of a, a geological phenomenon. Now, what is being talked about here? What's the sort of mythical context? Well, it's Hercules, it's Hercules' labours, but it's one in particular. It's his tenth labour, if you want to get mathematical uh, about it. It's where he goes off, uh, he kills the, uh, the monster uh, Gerion, or Geriones, who's mentioned at the bottom there, and winds his way all the way, this is in the far west that he does that, Erythea, 
He winds his way all the way back uh, to Greece, herding these cattle. And so many myths of Hercules within the Mediterranean basin are associated with that particular uh, story of the herding of of the cattle. So some examples here. Monaco, named... Uh, for a cult title of Hercules, Hercules Monoikos, Hercules the, uh, who, who goes on his own, kind of thing, who lives on his own. Um, Herculaneum, Heraclea, lots of towns that are named after um, Hercules. Um, and as we can see here, lots of locations um, that have a particular myth of Hercules associated with them. Now, what we're basically talking about here is a colonisation myth of the Greeks. When the Greeks expanded out of central, of, of core Greece, sent off its colonies in the Archaic period um, t- across the Mediterranean, one of the ways in which it sort of took possession um, psychologically of the ground that it found itself on, or the ground that the Greeks found themselves on, was by sowing myths of Hercules there. So all these places that Hercules visited have a sort of a tendency to be associated with the places that the Greeks went and the places that the Greeks colonised. And I've put Stesichorus's Geryoneus um, up there. It's a lyric poem by the lyric poet uh, Stesichorus, archaic Greek poet, who seems to have, whose poem is very fragmentary, but it seems to have reflected this association of the travels of Hercules and the extension of Greekness. Hercules is a kind of charter myth for Greek extension. Hercules is the Greek that went um, before. Now, I came to this um, initially through one particular instance of a myth associated with a particular location that's part of this larger myth of the cattle of Geryon. Because here we are in the eighth book of Virgil's Aeneid, with quite a famous, uh, the end of a very famous um, passage of the, of the poem, where Hercules defeats the monster Carcass, uh, an account described to Aeneas uh, by the king of uh, Rome at that time, Evander, the Greek king of, of Rome. Um, and it's a very important moment in the um, Aeneid. Um, it's a sort of model of what is going to happen in the rest of the poem, uh, the Olympian god, or god-to-be, Hercules, the, the embodiment of right, destroys the embodiment of wrong. Carcass is so wrong that his name almost looks like the Greek word for bad. You know, that's how bad he is. Um, it's also a, a sort of a model for the underlying story that the Aeneid is always at some level about, which is the conflict between Augustus and Antony. And at the end of Book 8, you'll see that conflict very explicitly on the shield of Aeneas. Now, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that there is an interesting blurring of the boundaries between the goody, Hercules, and the baddie, Carcass, in this account. Actually, when you read the account with care, the care that, say, something like somebody like uh, Oliver Lyne did uh, back in the day, you see that the monster Carcass and the hero Hercules are very, very interchangeable, very, very similar indeed. So one of the things I worked on, um, or pretty 
far back in the day as well, was the respects in which this myth, which is a kind of foundation myth of Rome, is also a myth of civil conflict. It's another way in which Virgil does what he's constantly doing in this poem, which is thinking about the recent history of Rome and that appalling period of warfare. Romans don't object to warfare generally, of course, but that appalling period of warfare where Romans were fighting Romans and you couldn't distinguish the goodies from the baddies. Okay. I want you just to sort of bear in mind the little bit of English that I've put in bold there and call on the God we know. Comunem que vocate deum. It's a way of describing Hercules as the communis deus, which I'll uh, come back to if I remember later. Okay. I've been very good at... I think I'm using an earlier version of this file. I haven't put, put references on. This is Propertius 4.9, um, which is a kind of spoof on what we've just been looking at. What Propertius does in this poem is that he imagines Hercules after he's dealt with Carcass. So he imagines Hercules after Book 8 of the Aeneid. Um, and he imagines Hercules being much less heroic, much less victorious, much less um, uh, uh, um, successful um, than he was in the Aeneid. And to give you uh, a broad sense of where he's coming from here, um, what he shows Hercules doing is being tortured by thirst after the uh, business of killing uh, Carcass and trying to persuade the priestesses of um, the cult of the Bonadea to give him a drink. The trouble is that the Bonadea is a cult which doesn't admit men. So Hercules is forced to try and persuade them to let him in and loses all dignity in the process. I'll just read the last well, paragraph in this, uh, in this translation here. Even if you sacrifice Juno bitter against me, she herself would not shut her waters uh, from me. But if any of you are afraid of my face or the lion's pelt or my hair bleached by the Libyan sun, I'm the same who has carried out slaves' tasks in, in a cloak of Sidon and spun the day's tally on a Lydian distaff. My shaggy chest was caught in a soft breastband and I was fit to be a hard-handed girl. Now what he's saying there is, I know I look like your absolute worst nightmare, the, the ultimate in masculinity. Uh, precisely the kind of individual that you would not admit to your woman's only um, cult. However, in the past, I have actually dressed as a girl. Uh, and he's referring to the myth of Hercules and, and Omphile, um, where he did actually have to dress up. Propertius plays on it rather a lot, and we have this completely bizarre image of his hairy chest uh, in a bra. Um, in the second last, last line there. Now, Propertius and Hercules are both dealing with a foundation myth of, of Rome. A foundation, foundation myth that's associated with a cult at the Ara Maxima. And when I'd sort of done my work way back on, on um, Aeneid 8, and you know, everybody had ignored it, as they, uh, as they always do, and when I sort of, uh, you know, taught 4.9, uh, Propertius 4.9 a few times, I thought that was kind of more or less it. But I discovered that Hercules was the gift that keeps on beating you over the head with his club. Because there's a whole other aspect to Hercules that I encountered at a later stage. 
which is also associated with the Ara Maxima in, in Rome. The Ara Maxima is in a place called the Forum Buarium, the cattle market. And in the vicinity of the Ara Maxima also is a location called the Salinae, the salt pans. Okay? So actually, historically, or mytho-historically, that area of Rome had been a cattle market and had been uh, a location for trade in salt. And actually, cattle trading and salt trading, I am told, go together very closely. And what emerged, it wasn't anything I discovered, it was stuff that um, archaeologists have been talking about for a long time, but, but literary people like me hadn't been listening to them. What emerged was that Hercules, amongst all other things, is a great god of trade within the Italian peninsula. He's a god of those um, points of connection that allowed people in Rome to trade with people in the central Apennines and people further south and further north. Now, what you're looking at here is a statue from a place called Alba Fucens of Hercules. Um, note how he's represented. He's got a cup in one hand. He's got a, a garland on his head. He's Hercules in um, celebratory mood rather than aggressive mood. And uh, Hercules is a happy drunk, generally speaking. That's sure there are many counterexamples to that, but let's assume he's a happy drunk at, at the moment. Um, and Alba Fucens is a place that is connected to Rome by trade routes, by the routes that cattle moved along and salt was traded, by the routes that Varro talks about at the top there when he's, um, he's reminiscing. I think it's he rather than the, somebody within his text is reminiscing about his, uh, his cattle and where they moved around Italy. I had flocks that wintered in Apulia and summered in the mountains around Riate. The, yes, it will be. These two widely separated places being connected by public cattle trains as a pair of buckets by their yoke. All along these cattle trains, trails, turns out, you'd have little shrines of Hercules. So everywhere throughout Italy, Hercules overlooked trade. And one consequence of that is you get myths of Hercules. He's still herding the cattle of Gerion back from Spain, but he's turned into something else. He's turned into a great figure of unity within Italy. Um, you could be reading this while I'm talking. I don't have time to read it myself. But it's a moment in Dionysius where he kind of rationalises the myth of Hercules and, and imagines, imagines Hercules as a figure who comes to Italy and mixes everything up, turns everybody into Italians, actually creates Italy, but creates unity within Italy, which you can, you can see is sort of quite like, I mean, it's very related to being the god of the, um, the trade routes through Italy, because trade routes are all about communication, all about uh, finding points of contact. So as I say, the God that keeps on giving. Horrible block of text here. But a moment in at the beginning of um, Ovid Metamorphoses, book nine, um, which again I shall leave you to, to read. But let me just draw out a few things about it, or the main thing about it. I was reading this at some point, graduate seminar or something, and it just sort of struck me one particular aspect of it. What's happening here is Hercules is trying to get himself and his wife Deonera across a river. And he encounters an apparently friendly centaur called Nessus, 
who says, I will help you. But just when Nessus gets um, Daenerys across the other side of the river, Nessus tries to get away. There are ramifications to this myth that eventually see the death of, of Hercules. We won't go into those now. But what's really striking about what Hercules says in Ovid's account of this is that he speaks like a merchant. Um, he talks about Nessus um, fallere depositum, not having fiducia, um, as, as stealing res nostras, stealing my goods. Now, what Ovid is doing in a very typically Ovid way is he's kind of rendering explicit something that's there, in, there within the character of Hercules in Italy, that god of trade, that god of the movement of goods around the place. It's, Ovid does it, of course, because it's another way of doing what Ovid is constantly doing in the Metamorphoses, which is sort of subverting the grandeur of heroes. Hercules is the greatest hero of them all. Hercules looks slightly less grand and impressive when he's, uh, he's, he's, he's concerned um, about uh, losing, his, uh, losing his material goods. Okay, where this is all leading uh, to at that stage, how am I doing? Um, was this poem of Horace, Odes 314, which I think I did put on there, but it's fallen off the bottom of the screen. That may have happened with a few of these, actually. Um, which is a poem about the return of Augustus to Rome um, after warfare out in the West. A poem in which, which starts with Horace associating Augustus with Hercules. Hercules Ritu. And then goes on to talk about Augustus as a figure who will put to rest all the recent violence that there has been within Italy. And Horace talks about the social wars, the Marcion War. He talks about Spartacus. And then in this beautiful conclusion, he talks about himself and how he's matured since um, the Battle of Pharsalus in 42, when Plancus was consul. So it's a poem that is all about the unifying of Italy under Augustus, the bringing of peace to Italy. And Hercules, of course, is exactly the figure that you want to associate with Augustus in these circumstances, because that's one of the things that Hercules was, this figure that did bring unity, intercommunication, peace to Italy. But there are other points, other ways that you can make use of Hercules, and the best, generally speaking, bring us back to Ovid's Metamorphoses. We're in book nine again. Um, Ovid has avoided doing the very obvious thing, which is recounting the, um, the 12 labours of Hercules systematically. What he does do, which is absolutely typical of the things that he does do in this poem, is he gives great emphasis to uh, an, in quotes, labour of Hercules, which isn't one of the canonical labours. In other words, the labour that it required Hercules' mother to endure to give birth to this hero in the first place, particularly as Juno was uh, objecting to the birth. Um, a wonderfully epic account of something that, in general, epic would not be seen dead being concerned with. 
uh, the travails of, of, um, of childbirth. When the time for Hercules' difficult birth came and Capricorn, the tenth sign, was hidden by the sun, the weight of the child stretched my womb. What I carried was so great, you could tell that Jove was the father of my hidden burden. I could not bear my labour pains much longer. Even now, as I speak, cold horror grips my body, and part of me remembers it with pain. Tortured for seven nights and as many days, worn out with agony, stretching my arms to heaven, with a great cry I called out to Lucina and her companion, gods of birth, the Nixie. Indeed she came, but committed in, in advance, determined to surrender my life to unjust Juno. She sat on the altar in front of the door and listened to my groans, with her right knee crossed over her left and clasped with interlocking fingers, she held back the birth. She murmured spells too in a, low, low, in a low voice and the spells halted the birth once it began. I laboured and maddened, made useless outcries against ungrateful Jove. I wanted to die, but my moans would have moved the flinty rocks. Okay, so weak, a week long labour is a truly epic labour. Very Ovidian, very typically Ovidian passage this. It's funny to some extent although probably less so if you've experienced labour. Um, uh, yes, well, you know, I don't need to say how grateful I am to have two kids and very grateful to be a father rather than a mother, so say no more. Um, but it's also very Ovidian for its vividness. You have the goddess preventing the birth, sitting there, clunt, clunt, um, right knee over, over less, left, and with her sort of hands together like this. You have an image of somebody trying to prevent a birth happening. Very, very vivid indeed. In broader terms, of course, what we've got in Hercules is a figure of great generic significance. If you're going to write an epic, a proper epic, it's going to be about Hercules. Um, Virgil knew that. Virgil gets Hercules in explicitly in Book 8 of his poem. Elsewhere in the poem, Aeneas is regularly associated with Hercules. When he puts the lion skin on his shoulders and lifts his father onto his shoulders, that's a Herculean moment. When he picks up the shield, which is kind of like the universe, that's like Hercules as well. But when Ovid comes along to write his anti-epic or his subversive epic, he needs Hercules, but he needs to um, deal with Hercules in a completely um, unexpected and subversive way. And concentrating on Hercules' mother is one way to do that. Well, a brilliant way to do that. Right, okay, in the last five minutes or so, we go to slightly different places, as I did, uh, as I encountered middle age, as my wife explained it to me. Um, we're in um, Afghanistan and Pakistan here. Um, and what we've got here, as anybody can see, is a representation of Hercules. Except it's not a representation of Hercules. It's a representation of the Hindu bodhisattva, or kind of deity, if you like, um, Vajrapani, who's a, a, a kind of bodyguard of the Buddha. And there you see him again with the lion skin on his head. A very peculiar thing happened in this part of the world when it was a Buddhist uh, location uh, before the arrival of um, Islam. 
Um, and it was that the iconography of Buddhism became heavily influenced by Greek art and Greek artistic style. Now, the basic reason for that was the conquests of Alexander, which is what placed Greek colonists momentarily in this area of the world. Um, now, they were there momentarily, but their artistic styles and their influence seems to have persisted rather longer. Hercules came along with them. And I hope you appreciate by now that it's no surprise that Hercules came along with these Greek colonists. These Greek colonists were much, much later than the Greek colonists we heard about before, but they were still extending the Greek world. And wherever Greeks went, Hercules had to come to. The myth of Hercules had to come. Now, we've got a passage from um, Arian here, which I won't read apart from anything else because I don't think I can see it. Um, but I will summarise what he's saying. He's talking about a, a fortress that Alexander set himself to capture in what's now Pakistan, though we're not entirely certain where it was. A fort the fortress of Aornos. Uh, and what Arian says is that Alexander particularly wanted to capture this place because it was said that Hercules, or Heracles, had captured it before. And wherever Alexander went, you get the impression that the, the myths of Alexander, sorry, the myths of Hercules went with him, in the sense that whenever he, whatever place he set out to conquer, the myths developed that Hercules had been there before. They found evidence of Hercules being there before. Now, Arian actually expresses a bit of scepticism, but, uh, but it seems to have motivated Alexander at any rate. So I haven't made the connection here, but somehow it makes sense that Alexander was rather obsessed with following the route of Hercules or Heracles, that the Greeks, finding themselves in the ancient equivalent of the moon, um, needed some indication that Heracles had been there beforehand. They needed to believe that it was a Greek place in that sense. And then Buddhist iconography, um, which found a place for um, Heracles. This thing that, you see the thing that Heracles is, oh sorry, beg his pardon, Vajrapani is holding there. That's a thing called a Vajra. It means thunderbolt and diamond. And it's a, a symbol of power and insight. Um, it's a, here is Hercules turning into something very different yet, sort of comparable to what he was in Greece. Okay, now this is a place where I did find myself eventually. I was still a classicist. I was taking this photo of the Valley of Bamiyan, uh, where the Buddhas used to be. There's where the larger Buddha used to be. There's where the smaller Buddha used to be. Uh, the smaller Buddha was not very small. Um, I'm about two kilometers away from both of them there. Now, how can I claim to have been operating as a, a classicist in, in Bamiyan? Well, one way I could is that as the Greeks moved through, with Alexander, moved through the Hindu Kush, which are the mountains that we're in here, they associated what they saw with Greek myths. Um, and in particular, they found somewhere in this vicinity a place that they believed uh, was where um, Prometheus had been pinned to the rock to be rescued by Hercules. Now, what I'm interested in is less actually what Alexander did in this kind of location and more what people in the 19th century thought he did. Very classically trained British soldiers and French soldiers um, and German doctors 
and things who moved through places like Barmian and thought they had found, well, the cave of Prometheus, because they thought that these, this cliff face was perfect for the location of Prometheus. So those 19th century guys were sort of locating Hercules as well. And those 19th century guys were doing something equivalent to the Greeks. If they could find Hercules there, it was not an unfamiliar place for them to be either. It was European cultural imagery which was being imposed upon alien territory. Uh, exactly what the Greeks had done with, with Hercules. Um, yes, thanks very much indeed. It's exactly quarter two, so I think you now have to uh, skedaddle.